The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents... Welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. And this week, we're going to dive really deep into the case that's happening in Delaware. You might have heard about it. Uh, Twitter is suing an entity owned by Elon Musk to try to force the deal. That entity, aka Elon, uh, you know, had agreed to acquire Twitter. They're going to try to force it to close. And um, we're in this kind of interesting period where that case is going to get going in earnest in October. But in the meantime, there's been a a lot of legal posturing and actually a lot of action in the courtroom that you know has gotten some coverage, but I don't think that you've heard about it in the amount of depth that you're going to hear about it today. Joining us to break down the case and what's happening in Delaware is the Chancery Daily. It is a publication that you're going to hear about um, in a little bit more depth as we get into our intro. And the reason why I'm referring it to a publication is our guest is going to come on um, just as the Chancery Daily um, unnamed, and we'll get into why that is. I think we can call her Chance. Uh, we're trying to figure out the right way to to do this, so bear with us. But anyway, welcome to the show, Chance for Daily. Thanks, Alex. It's it's great to be here. I'm really excited to have an opportunity to to speak to the people about this case. Um, you know, the Chancery Daily is a more a daily publication for basically way down in the weeds uh, for lawyers. We've been publishing for a decade. It was founded by one of my really close friends and former colleagues at a law firm were three Penn Law grads and a couple of other folks. And I'm here anonymously, quasi-anonymously as chance today because the way that we operate the publication is really not one of individual identity. We're um, a team. We, we, we speak as a team. We write as a team. We do everything as a team, so I really, you know, it's, it's really not about me. It's about the publication and the history that we have uh, developed institutionally in our memory over the last ten years of literally looking at every document that comes in or out of the Court of Chancery in Delaware. So happy to be here today. Yeah, great to have you here. I, I don't think, um, well, at least given your running analysis on Twitter, um, I haven't found anyone who's watching the closest as closely as, closely as you and your team. So um, so it's a real thrill to be able to dig into it, um, you know, deeply with you. One more question about, you know, in terms of, you know, going as chance today or the chancellor daily. Sure. Is the, is the case, my sense is that anything that Elon Musk touches gets like very heated having, you know, tweeted his name once in a while. Is, is the case, you know, uh, that hot and that, you know, uh, has it inflamed such passions that, um, you know, part of the reason to, you know, stay anonymous is to sort of avoid some of the, you know, the personal attacks that, you know, anyone who seems to wade into this are, are getting hit with. Yeah, sure. There's, there's an aspect of that. And I've actually tweeted about it, I think in several different threads, and I'll probably say that too many times today. And I apologize, but I, I always feel like I've already said everything twice on Twitter, but that's how Twitter works. Um, But, you know, I did a thread about sort of the, just the absolute 
factionalization of this matter into two camps that really have a difficult time dialoguing with one another. You mentioned in your intro that this program is into nuance and nuance is kind of one of my life life passions. Um, Mm -hmm. And I find that it's just so dramatically missing. I mean, first of all, you've got social media, Twitter, right, is the one party, then you've got Elon Musk is the the counterparty, you can't really imagine two more uh, uh, factionalizing kind of concepts coming together and having the two groups of people. Plus, you also have, uh, and I should just disclose here that I don't have a position in this case, financially, I don't uh, I intentionally refrained from taking a position in Twitter, even though I thought it was a pretty good bet uh, early on in the case, because you can see very clearly what it does to people's thinking to have a financial stake in the matter. You can just see it played out every day on Twitter in the discussions. It's just, it's very hard to remain objective or have any kind of neutral position. I'm not saying that there aren't people who manage it, but it's very difficult, especially if you're not incredibly conscious of what you're doing. Right. It's interesting. It's like, um, I think you hit the, the nail on the head, right? It's it's Twitter. It's an extremely nuanced case. <laughs> right. And of course, it's going to get a lot of play on Twitter because stuff about Twitter ends up getting discussed on Twitter. But it's just like the exact wrong forum to do it. And, exactly. Um, you know, I think that like this is why we have the show is because we can unpack stuff that goes beyond the tweets and the headlines. That's right. It's it's ironic because our publication is literally the most dense uh, right. <laughs> you know, email publication, probably in history, we we produce more words per day than I don't know of any other newsletter that even comes close. We dive into the absolute idiot, spittiest kind of detail about these things. And then, you know, about, a, well, about two months ago, I guess I decided, hey, do we still have that Twitter account? It turns out <laughs> we were locked out of our original Twitter account that we used to do some pretty banal, generic kind of posting on. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll hop on there, see see what's going on, see if people want to talk about this. And I mean, it has, in that sense, our visibility to the public has gone from basically zero to a hundred and, you know, as fast as the plaid mode or whatever. It's like, it, it's fast in, in terms of our, our growth into the scene of the sort of what I would call kind of pop corporate law, um, yeah. you know, where we're not talking anymore just to attorneys who are literally litigating these things on a day-to-day basis. We're talking to people that have such a wide range of base knowledge about the law or about finance or about corporate finance, but you know, you've got, you've got the whole diaspora you've got. So you trying to speak to people at their level is something that I've also actually talked a lot about on the meta level, because I think it's so important to have, a place, a way to communicate these these things to people. There, are, it, our our account is proof positive that there's a demand for it. You know, people really want to be engaged in these conversations, and I think that it's so critical to give people uh, an actual nuanced way to, to to play the game. You know, to talk about these things because yeah. they do matter to everyone. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, in in your uh, opening remarks, you said that initially you thought maybe it made sense to take a position on Twitter. Meaning, I think that you think that that Twitter was going to close this deal because Elon had signed an agreement saying he was going to buy the company. And typically, when you do that, you buy the company. It's kind of how <laughs> contracts work. Yeah. But I, I, I picked up a little bit on the fact that you said initially. So how's this case going so far? And how's it looking for both parties? 
So I, I, I frankly haven't changed my position on how uh, likely I think this deal is to close. I mean, again, I'll do like a little brief momentary lawyerly kind of caveat situation that this is all very nuanced. This should not be taken as financial advice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know that there are people who disagree with, with me and with my entire team on this, but you know, we do have a pretty exclusive kind of view on it. And we could absolutely be wrong. We could, you know, this case could come out any number of ways. One of the big things about this case is that a lot of it is happening under seal or it's just happening in the normal course of discovery that we don't get to see as outsiders. And so it's really hard to know for sure. Of course, in any legal case, it's impossible to know for sure what's going to happen. But here we're also handicapped by not being able to see the documents yet, by not being able to have a real view into all of the facts on the ground. But that being said, uh, Twitter has a strong case here. And just for the reasons that you articulated, you know, some of the fundamental principles of mergers and acquisitions that go back decades or, you know, uh, certainty of contract is certainty of <laughs> you signed the deal. You waived the due diligence that you could have had. You you entered into an agreement, and that means something in corporate law, in contract law, in law under various uh, domains. It, it 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 is meaningful, and it needs to be meaningful in order for companies operating to have certainty about things, because certainty is incredibly valued to corporation incredibly valuable to corporations and uh you know if you look at chancellor mccormick's most recent decision where she granted specific performance in the decopac case during the pandemic last year she said scoring a win for deal certainty i right. grant the motion for you know the, the so I, let's I grant just specific performance. break that down so that was yeah. she used the exactly the same provision that in the contract that Twitter has in its favor to force a smaller deal to close not long ago. That's correct. So the, she, yeah. Yeah. It was a deal during the pandemic. There are, you know, it was like, I think, uh, some, it, it was a private equity company that was coming in to buy a, a cake decorating. They, they sell cake decorating provisions to supermarkets. Um, and, you know, basically they had a provision in the contract that said that specific performance was a, a, a remedy uh, in the event of uh, an attempted breach. And she looked at those facts and she said, the the equitable remedy here is, is to specifically perform on this contract. And I mean, that brings me to something that we may want to talk about, which is, you know, the court of chancery is a court of equity, not a court of law. And it sounds weird to say it's not a court of yeah, law. Yeah, what does that mean? It, it certainly sounds like, yeah, no, a court of equity is a, uh, well, it's a long and storied uh, history, and I can uh, provide people to a link of the official written history of the Court of Chancery. But it, it, in its most basic terms, it means that the court has discretion to fashion a remedy that is that is equitable. I'm using all of the terms to define the term. I know, but um, it, it means <laughs> oh, yeah, that you're self aware of that. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it means that the court isn't bound by a certain limitation on what it can do in addressing a situation that it finds to be unfair. It fairness is the the the, hmm. the golden the, the guiding principle here, and so. You know, equitable in terms of the legal significance between the distinction of equity and law. Obviously, equity does, in some sense, fall under the category of law. But in this distinction that the law makes between equity and law, it means that the court can actually 
make people do things or stop people from doing things. Usually in civil litigation, the court can grant money damages when there has been a breach of a contract or of some other type of obligation. But here the court has specific performance is kind of the the ultimate uh, view into what equity means. Equity means you can actually enjoin people to do things. You can make injunctions. You can force people to, for instance, trim hedges, as one of the cases in the, the lower part of the state of Delaware involved a couple of years ago. Wait, that actually can, happened? Or they that, said, that you, you go happened. cut those hedges? Oh, okay. yeah. It was, it, was a, it was a kind of two legacy families in Delaware fighting the it's a it's an interesting case, but yes, there you can actually the court has this this power that isn't granted to all courts, which is to say, you will do this thing or you will not do this thing. I mean, a huge portion of the cases that the court of chancery hears right now are actually sort of TRO temporary restraining order cases. Well, they come in originally as a TRO uh, for employers that are breaching covenants of let's say they had an agreement with their employer that they wouldn't go work for someone else and then they leave and they go work for a competitor and then they get sued in the court of chancery because they want the court to enjoin the person from working at their new job and that's a big responsibility that the court sees the court is actually demanding that humans do or do not do things which is a lot different if you think about it than just saying yeah pay up the money (laughs) Right. It's much more akin to almost a criminal court where you're actually restraining people's liberty in some way, you can say. Um, So specific performance is kind of like the the optimal case to imagine what equity means. Equity, specific performance is an equitable remedy in that sense. It's saying, do this thing you said you were going to do. Right. And that's like kind of what's at stake here. So you think that that you know, because there's that specific performance clause in the contract, you know, basically saying the court can force this deal to close, your position is that they're likely to force Elon to buy Twitter. Now, of course, that would be extraordinary. Nothing like that has ever happened before, at least on this scale. And, and, but, but it does make sense. The, the, the logic makes sense that if you sign a deal with that clause in it, um, then that's sort of, you know, something you have to do and the court is there to enforce it. So that's kind of where I'm, um, you know, would like to jump into this is is there anything elon can say with his team of extremely high-priced lawyers <laughs> to say actually that doesn't apply um why is this if that's in the contract why is this even a case well it's a case i think at bottom because there's 44 billion dollars at stake and there's there's something that we don't really know what elon's perspective is on whether or not he wants to do this deal anymore but presuming that he does not then there's a lot at stake for him right well it seems so, like he doesn't because he's he's it trying to kill like it. he doesn't but there's also an argument that he's he's just oh, you trying know, to maneuvering negotiate for a discount. the price down okay. yeah yeah so i mean you know you can definitely look at it it's hard to he's a particularly hard person to read in terms of what he's actually, you know, he, he's sort of at once very transparent, but in the other sense, obviously he has a whole life that we don't see. Right. Exactly. So, you know, it's hard to guess and who knows, but if there, if he doesn't want to do the deal or if he desperately wants to do the deal at a discount and who wouldn't at these, at these prices, sort of a, even a small percentage discount is a whole lot of money. Then, you know, he's going to, I mean, some people have characterized it as throwing spaghetti at the wall. I think he's well within his rights to try to assert any 
arguable basis for getting out of this contract uh, that he can find. And he is certainly trying to find one. He has, you know, he has sent Twitter three termination letters now on three different bases. He has a whole host of arguments in his counterclaims um, that relate to all kinds of things, including Indian government investigations of Twitter and Texas Securities Act claims that that are <laughs> that seem very tenuous. Um, but you know, does he have any valid claims? The real the real question can't be answered until we know more about the facts. Look, he has a theory of the case, and, and to some degree, at this stage of the case, even though it's moving fast, that's really all he needs to have. He has a theory that Twitter misrepresented certain things in their 10K. They said that those Which filings Which is an SEC were, filing, yeah. That's right. He, they said that those files, in, in the contract specifically, he had to say, I'm only relying on things within the four corners of this document, but one of the things within those four corners of that document were that the SEC filings were accurate. And so he's kind of nibbling away at anything that he can to you know, parse whatever he can pull out to say that this, that, that there was fraud, that they were, they were lying, that they were concealing things. Now, do we have any public evidence of that? I mean, that's certainly something that people on Twitter, uh, have a fun time debating. Um, you know, we started with the argument, uh, the reductionist version of the argument was Elon's quote, 5% bots theory, um, which was already, in my opinion, a misrepresentation of what is actually at stake legally, which was this long paragraph in Twitter's SEC filings that that details how they go about the process of determining what is a bot on Twitter, what is a monetizable daily active user, and then how they subtract all the, the bots. And then after they do that from the pool of people who they are going to tell advertisers, hey, these are monetizable daily active users. They say, look, our process is what our process is. It's subjective. It's subject to all these caveats, but we come out around 5% or less of our after bot removal pool being actually right. still bots. And so, you know, he, Elon and his team have, have done what they have done to certainly in the common understanding that got misrepresented as if there's more than 5% of, of accounts on Twitter that are bots, then the deal is off. That is absolutely not the case under the law, no, no matter how you read things. Right. This is all about monetizable daily active users. Exactly. Is this the first letter, termination letter that they sent? Because you mentioned that was, three. That was the first. Number one. Was, and yes. by the way, before we get on to the second yeah. one, my I'm having trouble to understanding. Is it the fact that there were bots on Twitter or is the fact that Elon's lawyers said that Twitter was not giving them the appropriate information to make the calculation on bots? Because I've heard both of those things yeah. being thrown out as a grounds to try to... Um, you know, blow the case up, but, no, um, that's right. which, yeah, which is, so, which is it? Right. So there, there are two, there are two aspects to it and you're right to distinguish them. And look, this contract is, I think 68 pages or something. It's, uh, it's incredibly detailed, right? Anyone who tells you, Oh, the contract just says this, you have to immediately look at them askance because the contract says a lot of things and a lot of them interplay in very complex ways. And also, Contract law interpretation 
is its own wild west mm-hmm. of sorts. It it has a lot of sort of common law principles that may or may not be really uh, useful in Delaware. Some of them will be very common to be you know used in Delaware. Others will be really kind of esoteric. So interpreting the contract is this whole uh, ball of wax, bowl of wax. I'm not sure what the expression is, but it's a whole thing. It's a waxy problem. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but to your point, there are, there, there are two separate issues here. There are information rights that Elon says that he has under the contract, which give him the right to information that, that Twitter promised to give certain information so that he, for in his, in his understanding, so that he could determine whether they had been telling the truth in their SEC filings. Um, the real problem is, you know, what is the scope of that information? Like that's a that's a that's sort of a, a question of fact that has to be a determination of fact that has to be made by someone, uh, probably not just some rando on Twitter. But you know, did they give sufficient information? as they agreed to do under the information rights. That is a question. And what is the ramification if they didn't? You know, I'm pretty sure that there's a strong argument that let's say they just barely failed to give all the information. Well, all that he's really said that he was asking for information about was to prove whether the SEC filings were accurate, right? That's the only thing he can sort of legitimately fight for because he didn't negotiate some broader set of information rights. He negotiated for what he negotiated for. And so then there's like, how do we interpret what he negotiated for? So there is (laughs) an argument to make. I don't think it's a particularly strong one, but that they didn't give him what he needed. Now, if you actually take him at his word that what he wanted was not a way out of the contract, but actually to determine whether the SEC filings were accurate, then you've got to look at the SEC filings and say, what are we trying to prove or disprove, right? We're not trying to prove or disprove some quote unquote 5% bots theory. That is not, that does not exist. What we're trying to prove or disprove the accuracy of is this long paragraph in an SEC filing that says all sorts of things like, we don't know if this process is good or not. This process may be terrible, but here's the process that we use. And this is how the result comes out. And this is what we say. Now, how do you disprove something that is so clearly caveated that is so clearly has all these, you know, like the, these, these nuances in it, right. It's not as simple as him pulling every hundred users on his personal profile and determining whether they're bots. It's not even as simple as him getting every tweet in history and every retweet and comment and reply and DM and everything else. And then making his own determination. It's still not even about that. It's about what did they say? And was that, True or untrue. Yeah. And this this first termination argument sounds oh, just a little ridiculous uh, to almost everybody looking on. So why don't we go to the um, you know second and, and third ones that yeah. they tried? And I, I imagine they involve um, you know the wild card that's come up recently, which is this <laughs> whistleblower um, yeah. at Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, look to be fair, I. I, I despite or in in light of or for the reason for why I don't have a position in Twitter is because I want to be able to look at this case objectively. And I know that that's influenced by so many factors, but this whole way that this whistleblower stuff is coming out, like it's not optimal. Yeah. So can you, can you take us um, sort of at the, um, 
you know, from the start, who's the whistleblower and how does that factor into the case? So I think you probably pronounces it Pieter, but it might just be Peter Zatko, um, also known as Mudge in the information uh, technology community or the cybersecurity community. Look, he's a he's a well-respected uh, guy who seems like in the absence of all of the stuff that has happened over the last six months, you would have looked at him and said, Oh, he's like one of the OGs, right? He's like one of the, he's, he seems like he has a lot of street cred. He certainly has a lot of street cred with the people in his industry and the people who sort of think the way that he does about cybersecurity issues. Right. And he's the former chief information security officer at Twitter. He was called head of security. Right. Yep. Who was fired by um, Parag Agarwal, the CEO of Twitter, in Jan- January. So yes. just a few months before the Musk, Elon Musk <laughs> right. appeared in the Twitter narrative. I mean, can you imagine this whole thing from Parag's perspective? It's just like, it <laughs> seems like it's like a Netflix movie waiting to happen, right? He rises up the ranks from engineer right. to CTO, and then Jack does what Jack does in the middle. And then all of a sudden he's like CEO. <laughs> and, and then what happens, right? All of these things happen at the same time. And it's quite insane to think about what it must have been like as a human being from his perspective. But um, yeah, so, you know, Mudge uh, raises these issues to the to his. I mean, presumably, I think he's reporting directly to Agarwal at that point, or to his his superior. Right. And what are the issues that he raised exactly? I mean, look, there's various ways to categorize these things, but generally, that you know, Twitter devs work in a production environment, not in like a sandboxed environment. He that's there's obviously a risk there. You're you're working with code that is production code. You're he think he he has a problem with the sort of up to datedness of of everyone endpoint or Twitter employees' computers that their latest OS isn't installed. Mm. You know, kind of things that you can really see it either way. If you've ever worked with a, a, a Silicon Valley company who moves fast and breaks things, you're probably like, yeah, this is every company in Silicon Valley, right? But if you're on the cybersecurity side, you're thinking, oh my God, this is like, this, these are bad things, right? I think it's hard for lay people and lawyers, especially, and even or arbitragers or anyone who's listening, you know, uh, interested in these things. I think it's hard if you haven't watched these two kind of groups of people interact before, sort of business folks and tech folks, it, well, IT sort of cybersecurity folks, you might not really get the vibe that's going on here. But the vibe that's going on here is like, for much, I believe that that these things freaked him out. Like, I believe that he looked at this and said, this is absolutely terrible. I also believe that that's sort of just his opinion, man. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> like they, yes, they hired him to be head of security. But also, they have a business plan and a business model, and they have to make business decisions, right? The the board of directors, the officers and directors, they're the ones who run the company. They have to make final decisions about these things. It turned out that he was very antagonistic when they wouldn't take it. They would hear him. They wouldn't take his suggestion he was just not okay with that. And I look from a personal perspective on his part, I can understand that. Like it's annoying to be telling your team that the, the business is on fire and nobody's doing anything about it. But the thing is that, especially in Delaware, the directors and officers of a company are the ones 
who get to the board of directors run the company, right? They, the, 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 the directors and officers are the ones who are the company. It's they in Delaware, the, there's a thing called the business judgment rule. And what it means is that courts are not really in a position to question the business judgment of these folks. Right. right. And so all that they really have to prove is that they made an informed business judgment and that they shared it with the appropriate people. Now, I suppose this is where you get into the question of like, did they share relevant information with the appropriate people? Um, and that's part of what, you know. Right. I so think- what is what is the Musk camp alleging when it comes to these mudge? Like, is this termination letter two and three coming from him? And, yeah. And, and what are those specific arguments and do they hold any weight? So unfortunately, it won't be till the end of this week that we see the actual counterclaims that come out of these new termination letters. But we do get to see the brief articulation in the termination letters and that the first one involves simply the fact of, the, of, of Mudge existing and that he was a whistleblower and that he had this complaint. And, you know, he both wrote a complaint at to Twitter at the time, right? He spent 150 or 170 hours or something of his own time after he was uh, terminated, writing up what he thought were these problems at Twitter. Now it's notable, I think, to to look at that actual document and see that it does not mention bots. It does not mention MDAO. It does not mention any of the sort of hot button issues that were at, at the forefront of this case. However, but it is him saying, yeah. So I'll let you go. I guess he, he says that they did violate some of their agreements with the FTC and the SEC, and that. Potentially That's grounds true. for removal or, or, well, or termination in his, in his, because so if you're relying on complaints, yeah. right, right. So there's two complaints, just to be clear. There's the thing that he wrote to Twitter, which was this report that he wrote up when he was actually fired. He said it in his termination interview, the words that no chief legal officer ever wants to hear, which is, I think you're doing bad things in this company. And so, of course, the legal team was like, excuse me, what? Uh, well, could you put that in writing? Could you tell us all about what you think? Because we we can't just let you leave your termination interview and walk away with this coming out of your mouth at your exit interview, right? That would not be responsible. So they ask him to write up what his complaints are. And he does that. Now he turns in that document, that document. Yeah. It says that they're in violation of the FTC consent decree um, with their information sort of security policies that they are or are not putting in place. And then Later, right? So, so then now we find out that in the intervening months, he's alleging that they wrongfully terminated him and he's either threatening litigation. We don't know the details of exactly what happened, but we do know that at some point Twitter was like, here's seven million dollars. Okay. Can we, can we be good? <laughs> right. And uh-huh. so, but then he writes his whistleblower complaint after that. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that's the order of things, right? Because I think yep. he received the payment in, in, well, I guess it's kind of tight there what was actually happening. Um, in any case, he's received, he's negotiating with Twitter for a settlement of his wrongful termination claim to whatever extent he actually brought that claim, probably just by letter of an attorney or something. And then he's at the same time writing his whistleblower complaint that he's going to file with Congress. <laughs> and wow. so, yeah, you yeah. can see this from a lot of different perspectives. You can see it, at, you know, it, whistleblower complaints are hard. Uh, to process as an outsider, because in some way, whistleblowers always seem like aggrieved, wronged 
employees. And sometimes they legitimately are, but also sometimes they're just legitimately mad at the company for kind of more interpersonal, emotional reasons. And it's hard from the outside without all of the information to determine what kind of a case this is. Okay. And so, so basically what, what Elon's team is saying is that these out, the fact that he existed, the fact that he made these allegations are grounds to let Elon out of the case, you know, so we have the bot, right. the bot answer, and then we have all these answers in terms of these, these reasons in terms of um, the, the Twitter breaching its agreement with the FTC yeah, let me, and let lying me clarify, to the SEC. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Let me clarify on the, the two grounds for termination, then on the second and third uh, letters that, that that Musk sent to Twitter. Second one is you, you had this thing with Musk and, oh, sorry, with Mudge, and you didn't tell us about it. You didn't okay. disclose it to the right people internally. That seems material. I mean, it does seem like you'd want to let the person who's acquiring the company know that the the head of security was blowing the whistle on the company. It absolutely does. However, you also have, uh, as a sophisticated party entering a $44 billion transaction right. over a weekend, you have a <laughs> strong responsibility, especially under the law of, of, of Delaware corporate, the sort of body of Delaware corporate law. You have a very high bar for the questions and the information that you demand. Right. Right. So, Yes, of course it does. I mean, my first response too was like, hmm, seems like a little <laughs> unfortunate that this is coming out this way now. Yeah. Right? It's not a good look for Twitter. You can't right. imagine. But at the same time, they are literally being advised by the best legal team on the face of the earth. I don't know. Like they have very good lawyers. The idea that their lawyers would have allowed them to do something on the facts that was so egregious if it wasn't for the fact that Musk didn't ask any questions. He just said, I want to buy this. Yeah. He basically didn't even say that. He said, look, I'm either going to buy it or I'm going to sell my 9.2% stake and tank your share price, which is it. Like, it doesn't really seem like um, the, the Twitter board didn't really have a choice but to accept his offer. And he's the one who made the offer, right? They negotiated a deal. He chose not to ask certain questions and that counts for a lot in this court yeah the so we'll talk about the chancellor the, who's hearing the case a little bit in the second half and let me just also the third yeah. one real oh, the quick. Third oh, one. sorry yeah the third one is just that they made him a payment of 7.75 million dollars and i believe that the grounds are that musk alleges that one that was out of the ordinary course of operations and that he wasn't he did not give his consent so in the contract he did negotiate for information and consent rights. And so, but there's always a complicating factor, right? He, we don't know the details of this, but in one of her recent opinions, the chancellor has this, this, this mention, one of those things where she just drops a, like, you know, a really important fact in the middle of the room, which is Musk has been, apparently we don't, we don't have the details publicly, but she alleges, which I trust her, that Musk has been withholding consent for everything that Twitter has asked for. Basically, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to say, let me have consent rights and then just irrationally or unreasonably withhold consent on everything. Because you can basically hold the company hostage while you're in court trying to negotiate your way out of the deal, right? So she did not like the fact that he had been withholding his consent for, for basically normal things that the company wanted to do. And so is it a bad look that they 
didn't ask him for consent, if they didn't about the $7.75 million, it really matters whether it was a settlement or whether it was a, a rights plan because under the contract, there's there's a differentiation and they, they have up to a $25 million cap on settlements that they can make without his consent. So it's another thorny issue, but that's what the third termination letter is about. Okay. So um, let's take a break. And then when we come back, I want to hear your perspective about, um, we're going to talk, we talked a little bit about the court, but I want to talk a little bit about Chancellor McCormick, who's uh, hearing this case. And then um, some how these specific arguments that we've brought up in the first half are actually playing out. And then where we think this, this case is going, if we don't know exactly, maybe we'll, we'll take some guesses. All right. So we'll be back here uh, in a moment with Chance, Chancery Daily here on Big Technology Podcast. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this. Higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. And we're back here for the second half of Big Technology Podcast, Chancery Daily, uh, which is a great newsletter and Twitter account. You can find the Twitter account. What's the exact uh, handle again? Mm-hmm. Is it Chancery underscore daily because right. we got locked out of our first yes, one and I then knew, things yeah. escalated rapidly. Okay, great. So make sure to include the <laughs> underscore there. Yes. Um, so. Why don't we we kick off the second half? Just I want to hear about how these arguments are playing out in the in the court, which you've been watching very very closely. So first of all, um, tell us about the chancellor. This this is so the chancery court has some some vice chairs, um, but then it has the person who's uh, who runs the thing effectively, and yes. that's who's hearing it, Chancellor McCormick. That's right, Chancellor Kathleen St. Jude McCormick. Mm-hmm. Uh, she has been on the court since 2018. She has been chancellor since 2021, I believe. I think that the KK decision that she put out in 2021, that was the one we mentioned about also granting specific performance, was her last opinion that she put out as vice chancellor before she was elevated to chancellor to re- replace Chancellor Bouchard. Um, so she's, uh, what can I say about her, man? She has just, this case has has been very exciting to me personally because it has been this incredible opportunity for the world to see what we have known at the Chancery Daily for the last decade that we have been doing this. I mean, as long as she's been on the court, certainly. Uh, and even when she was a practicing attorney, um, she was one that you would listen to her hearings as a as a as a practicing attorney, and you would just be like, "Wow, man, this woman is amazing!" Mm-hmm. Right? She just always nails the heart of the matter like so thoroughly and so clearly and succinctly and uh she has been guiding the court through a period of of 
a big expansion. The court went from um, five to seven uh, members. Uh, so there are both, chan- there's the chancellor, then there are vice chancellors, and there are, are also masters in chancery. Um, they handle matters that then need sort of uh, the vice chancellor or chancellor to sign off on if, if the parties ex- file exceptions to them. Anyway, the, so there are nine members of the court. Broadly speaking, there are seven uh, chancellor and vice chancellors. Uh, there's just only one chancellor, obviously. But um, Chancellor McCormick is uh, what we know about her. She's a big Notre Dame fan. Uh, she supports <laughs> Newt Rockne a lot. Um, she, she's no nonsense, right? Like, that's the thing. People expected, no people expected this court to sort of fold Elon's, you know, this you know, big multi-billionaire and didn't want to do something in our country. We typically are used to having big multi-billionaires who don't want to do things, not have to do them. But it does seem like she is hearing a lot of Elon's arguments and calling them out for being as, you know, some of them as ridiculous as they are, which has been a surprise to me because, you know, I, I, my belief, I'm kind of on the other side of this issue than you. I think that Elon will either get out of it or, you know, settle it for, um, you know, some amount of money. Um, mm-hmm. that, that might not be too painful for him, might be a little bit painful. Um, but it does seem like every little game that he's trying to play that you would like say, okay, maybe he can wiggle out of it now. She's calling him on it. Yeah. It's kind of like the worst There's, nightmare for the Elon legal team. She is the thing that I think is like, she is the, in that sense, the perfect foil. If I don't really like setting up an adversarial battle between the two of them, but if you had to imagine a perfect judicial uh, foil for Elon Musk's kind of shenanigans, if you believe that he engages in such things, then she's kind of the, 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 Elon (laughs) does engage in shenanigans. Everybody (laughs) agrees on that. Sorry, go ahead. It's true. Some people just like it. Some people think it's, some people think it's good. It's bad. We all agree. We all agree on something. Look at that. Um, (laughs) But no, she's, she's, the, the, the thing about her is that she's quite unassuming. She is, you know, not a really loud, boisterous person. She's very um, opposite of sort of Elon's presence in on social media and the way that he, you know, makes product announcements and grand grand pronouncements about the master plans and this and that. Like she's sort of the other end of the spectrum. She is no nonsense. She is always business. She is incredibly fair. She has just integrity, like like no one I really, you know, can even compare her to. She's just simply a straightforward, what you see is what you get. What the law says is what you get. We're not going to treat anyone differently in this court. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, she's, she's, she's probably a new experience uh, for him in the sense that nothing gets by her, right? You're not going to pull the wool over her eyes. You're not going to confuse her with a bunch of different uh, termination letters. You're not going to change your argument so many times that she gets thrown off kilter. Like this is a thing that does not happen to her. She sees through, she deals every day with the nonsense of litigants who are just obsessed with litigating long, crazy, intricate, expensive battles over tiny points of minutia. And she sees the big picture and she sees the very little picture. She's incredibly good at seeing the macro and the micro in the same moment to really come to the heart of things. And so I don't think that he's really ever come up against an institution that had that going for it. Can I go out on a limb and say that um, effectively what, what Elon is trying to say is hold up is that, yes, he didn't do due diligence, but 
Twitter should have respected, you know, the law when disclosing things to the SEC. And, you know, they and he's saying they lied and that therefore he should get out of the case. That seems to be one of the main pillars of his argument. Yeah. Um, how is the chancellor treating the fact that Elon is putting that argument up, given that he did effectively, and you can call me if, I, if I'm wrong on this, but effectively he waived his right to due diligence, right? He did this deal over a weekend effectively, effectively with a shotgun to Twitter's heads. Yeah, I mean, look, she said it in the hearing herself. She said, basically, oh, shucks, it's too bad you guys didn't do due diligence and we'll never know what you could have found out if you had just tried, right? She laughed, she chuckled and she said, well, we'll never know what you could have discovered because you didn't do any due diligence. And look, she has a long and deep background in mergers and acquisitions law, obviously being in the position that she's in, but also being in the practice that she was in. She really grokks everything about M&A generally. Like she just, she has the whole historical picture. She knows every reference that every attorney will throw out there offhandedly. She gets all of it and she incorporates it all into her thinking. And she knows that deal certainty is incredible. It is the paramount concern, I would say. I mean, protecting shareholders, the way that you do that is that you make sure that deals, that there is deal certainty. Deal certainty is like a huge imperative of what this court wants to provide. Because otherwise, what is the alternative? Someone can come along and throw a grenade into the, the waters of your company's value and the, the, the market price and just throw everything off kilter and then just go, nah, no thanks. You know, just kidding. She said, this is not, uh, we don't do just kiddings is in right. expedited litigation, but she we don't that. do just kiddings is in any context, as far as she's concerned, when you're talking right. about a $44 billion transaction. Yeah. Has she shown any willingness to hear any parts of Elon's argument? For one, I think that she's allowing some of this whistleblower uh, testimony. Right. And if you're, if you're on Elon's legal team, um, is there anything that you're reading into what she's saying? And, and, you know, that gives you a sense that you might win. I mean, look, she's doing her absolute job and her level best, which is way more than sufficient to make sure that Elon has every opportunity to try his case in this, in this matter, even though it's so expedited, she is allowing these amendments to come in. She is, you know, even though, look, the point would be, okay, Due diligence is where you find these things out about the company. If the company has a, a, a whistleblower on, on, on the chain that's about to blow the whistle, you could just ask them, has anyone, you know, filed any complaints? Have they, you could do due diligence to come to these issues. So to, to say now, six months down the road, however far, far we are away from, from that initial, you know, deal to say, oh, hey, hey, we, you know, we just found out about this. And isn't this rude of Twitter not to have told us about this voluntarily when we didn't negotiate for them to have to tell us about it? You know, she's, it, look, we're going to look very carefully at the terms of these things. And this trial has not happened yet. And it is moving incredibly fast. But discovery is still going on behind the scenes, right? There'll be facts that come out at trial that could certainly change my opinion. I mean, they could change anyone's opinion if you're being honest about looking at the case under the law. Right. But on the facts that we have now, um, is it a bad look about how this, this uh, Mudge stuff came out? Sure. It doesn't, it's not great, right? You can't, I don't think you can deny that it's not great. However, does it matter under the law is a completely separate question that I don't think people are grappling with. And I don't think that under her view of the law or under the law itself, 
the the absence of other facts, there's there's no reason why it matters because he should have found out about it. if if he if it's material to him, if it's material to the company, then he should have found out about it before. Now he would say you should have disclosed it in your SEC filings if it was material. And fair enough, if it was material, but then there'll be a question of fact about that. A question of law, mixed question of law, in fact. Uh, was this material? Are these concerns that Mudge had legitimate? Were they? Do they rise to the level of some material adverse effect? Or that's a whole other question under the law, but or, w- should they have been disclosed to the SEC? Was not disclosing them fraud in the inducement somehow of him signing this contract. Um, I mean, that, that that would be a long game Twitter had been playing, you know, since they filed their 2021 uh, SEC filings, what, hoping, thinking that Musk might come along and make them an offer based <laughs> on what they said. I mean, that, that doesn't really, uh, you have to kind of read that history backwards to think about that argument. But look, he has, he has colorable claims and that's um, all we don't know more than that now, but he, she is giving him every opportunity to argue everything that he has asked to argue thus far. So that being said, um, you know, if I'm Twitter's lawyers, okay, if it's just bots, all right, maybe I, you know, stick this one out and, you know, I have a judge that seems to be in favor of no nonsense and, and making sure that, that deals that get signed close. Uh, but now I'm dealing with not only this potentially this bot issue, which may or may not be legit, but also with, with you know more credible claims. Let's just put it that way from this from this whistleblower, um, and you know that that stuff can can go um, like you mentioned, you know, in, in any way once you get to trial. Right. Most cases that come before the court, if I'm getting my stats correct, close. In fact, the vast majority. Sorry, they settle. The vast majority of cases settle. Is there a world where Twitter's lawyers say, if I can get, you know, basically say, I want to take this to trial no matter what, because I want the judge to force this to close? Or do they, do you think there's like real temptation because of the uncertainty, which we definitely have uncertainty now to, to settle? Right. A couple of things on that. So first of all, you're absolutely right that most cases that come before the court settle, right? We don't go to trial on every, thank God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't go to trial on every, for our, for my sanity. We don't go to trial on every matter, not even close. However, you have to remember that this deal is in a unique posture. Most cases that are filed, the, the, the lawsuit comes after the thing happens, right? Here, we're preemptively trying to, in this case, force something to happen. Um, so this isn't like necessarily on all fours with with the the vast majority of cases that we see and this ties mm. into the the way that that Twitter is in my opinion unlikely to be really contemplating a settlement i mean there's all kinds of opinions on this but you have to remember that there's legal liability at this point to Twitter's board of directors if they would try to engage in a settlement because their share especially after tomorrow's vote after tomorrow's vote Sorry, after yesterday's vote. Uh, yeah, we're recording this, you know, ahead of, <laughs> right. ahead of the vote. Well, presuming that the vote, uh, that, it, that we passed the mark, which everyone is expecting that it, that it did, uh, you know, then we're going to be in a situation where the board doesn't really have the, dis- could they settle the case? I, I, I think so. It's such a rare situation where we're involved as a court in this phase of, of things that it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, 
it's slightly novel in a lot of ways, or it's at least fairly uh, uncommon. So the board is bound by its obligation to get the highest, well, to maximize shareholder value. Arguably, that means get in a merger context, getting the highest price for those shares. So they don't really have like this unlimited authority to just decide that, well, in my estimation, the, you know, $50 a share would be a good cut against Musk and we can just settle this now. Like, can they settle? Yes, but there are all kinds of litigation consideration, follow-on litigation considerations that come up when they start thinking about settlement. Plus, after the shareholder votes happen, then you've got to think about, do you have to write a new proxy? You have to hold another vote. How do you, there's so many complexities that an SEC uh, expert could could talk us through, but it's not as simple as like, does it seem like, you know, a good deal at this point to just take the money and run or whatever? It, it, it's already gotten a lot more complex. So my, in, in, in my perspective, the way that Twitter is litigating this case is it, look, they didn't even ask for any additional remedies in the complaint. They just said specific mm. performance. They just said, make this deal happen. Look, he, he made an offer that was so far above market at the time. <laughs> what yeah. else are you going to do, right? How can you legitimately say, how can you back off the gas pedal on pushing this deal forward when it was, I mean, it was, it was what it was. It was in some senses, a generous offer. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, you know, they don't have, they can't just say, yes, we can settle and then have no repercussions for that. There are real ramifications for them. Um, if not in actual liability in the future, but for just the headache of having to deal with an endless an endless set of shareholder lawsuits if they would decide to settle on terms that were anything less than 54-20 per share. Right. But also, I mean, what if they lose? Like they're in some deep trouble if they lose this one, don't you think? Well, yeah, what if they lose? The thing is that if they lose on the merits, like if there's actually been some massive fraud going on at Twitter and it was all just like this whole thing has been some elaborate ploy to get this offer to entice Musk to buy, to to make him sign a deal that was so seller friendly that he didn't get, he, they didn't have to tell him these things that were actually material. If all of those facts would align, then I mean, yeah, the company is going to be in trouble no matter who owns it. Um, and but 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 at this point, um, there's no evidence that that any of that is at all clear enough, and there's certainly no like vibe from the 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 lawyers on Twitter side that they are doing anything other than going at this all the way to the finish line. And I, you know, I think the law is in their favor. Like I say, the bar for what a, a sophisticated actor should do when entering into a contract that is this friendly to the seller and this sort of disadvantageous to the buyer. Look, he's he's like her quintessential billionaire, right? I found a Twitter opinion that she wrote in January compelling Twitter to produce some anonymous users' data. And she actually cited Elon Musk as as evidence for the fact that Twitter is a, a an influential platform. She said, you know, when billionaires like Elon Musk tweet, mm-hmm. the market responds. Like she sees him as almost the quintessential kind of like who has the most responsibility to enter into deals consciously, carefully, with incredible diligence, with just like who else but him has the responsibility to go to the ends of the earth to determine whether or not they want to enter into a contract for a $44 billion purchase, right? right? If not him, then who? So 
he's not he's not he's not even close to the bar that that should have been set for him to to participate in this transaction responsibly. Yeah. Okay. So you that, given all this, your your thought is we're going to see this go to the end and we're probably going to see Twitter win. I mean, from a very personal level, I I hate to think through that because it's like, oh my god, that means we're actually going to go to trial in a month. Um, uh-huh. And and it is rare for a case like this to just fall for. I mean, this case has been unusual in every respect. It has put such an insane burden on mm-hmm. the court. It mm-hmm. has, you know, it, it it has been unusual in every respect. But I, if I think about it logically, I just I don't see an off ramp uh, at this point. What does trial look like? Oh, it's five days. It's a it's a non jury trial. The one of the things about being a court of equity and, and not a court of law is that the all trials in the court of chancery are non-jury trials, which has significant advantages uh, in a lot of ways, especially for incredibly complex matters. Um, the judges are very specialized in their knowledge of, of corporate law and of the way that corporations work and the expectations of parties under mergers and acquisition agreements. Um, so it's five days. She has said... She was, at least in the initial hearings, fairly clear that she really didn't think that more than five days was merited. We do have this this issue now where we've got additional claims that are coming in with the whistleblower. So we're yet to see whether she has any appetite for giving another day potentially to that. Um, I doubt it, but um, it's possible that if if things really flesh out with this this termination agreement payments and all of that, if there's if there's factual sort of they need to put witnesses on to talk about all of that and whether it was within the ordinary course and maybe, but it's likely five days, October 17th to 22nd. Um, it's mainly just witness after witness on the stand. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a law and order kind of trial, really. <laughs> um, it's, you know, a judge who already uh, knows what's, what's at stake. They know what the issues are. They know, you know, they're, in the historical past of this court, there are examples of uh, former Chancellor Strine actually interrogating witnesses himself. Um, you know, it's different than than what you might think of if you only know a, a normal or a Hollywood jury trial. It's certainly different than that. It's um, it's basically just putting facts into evidence through witnesses, and right. so you'll see Elon Musk. Well, we won't. I mean. There will not be video of this trial, uh, as far as anyone can tell. There will be likely an audio feed, um, oh, fingers crossed, for public access. Um, there will be media people there. It will be a circus at the courthouse. There will be a reporter from every single tiny publication <laughs> on earth. Um, you know, the Solar City trial was a bit of a circus uh, atmosphere. I mean, this is a small court that is generally so staid in its kind of manner and it's very mm, quiet and, you know, it's more like a library than uh, a boisterous kind of party vibe there. So when these big trials happen, uh, they certainly have to, to accommodate and, and they do, and they will have like a media overflow room where all the media people can be. And um, yeah, I, uh, there's already people talking about reserving their places in line with apparently there are services in New York City that people are looking at bringing to Wilmington to have people sit in line outside of the courthouse to get in. Right. Um, so I don't know how circusy it's going to get, but I also know that the chancellor and all of the 
the core stuff. They, they, uh, brook no nonsense in terms of like, uh, you know, shenanigans. So right. it'll be interesting. Uh, there'll be a, a court, uh, what's it called? Like an, a sketch artist, uh, there was for the solar city matter. Um, there'll be a sketch artist there to draw more pictures of Elon. <laughs> um, all these people, there's this one old Tom Brady drawing in a courtroom that everyone always puts up whenever he loses, by the way, sorry. Uh, just here, just speaking, speaking through this stuff, it, it is interesting because um, it, it seems like this is going to be a, a trial, you know, on the merits of the case um, with a no nonsense chancellor. Uh, but it also like it's clear to everybody involved that Elon is just fishing for reasons to try to get out of this thing. So I guess this is like the, my, my last question on this stuff because I know we're out of time. But um, how, how much does the fact that that like Elon is transparently fishing? you know, for any excuse to get out of this deal going to play into the judgment here. Hmm. There's actually a couple of decisions recently that we reported out of one out of the Delaware Superior Court and one out of the Court of Chancery where the Vice Chancellor Lasser from the Court of Chancery decision was specifically talking about, you know, shenanigans in uh, the course of litigation. And in the Superior Court, they were talking about these shifting grounds of uh, of, of arguments and just I guess, needless to say, it's not something that, that that sets a good tone for the character of your star witness, right? The Vice Chancellor Laster specifically said that basically, whatever the the, the party's litigation counsel does in the in the course of litigating the case, he 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 thinks it's completely fair to reflect that back upon their client. So if the council is t- constantly shifting their, their positions, then when that client gets on the stand in trial and tries to make a good faith argument about something, you know, he's basically like, look, I attribute litigation counsel's actions to their client. That's what <laughs> lawyers do, right? They represent their clients. So if you play shenanigans during the pendency of the trial, it's going to have an impact on how I hear the witness at trial and what kind of credibility I grant to what they say and so i think it in various ways it actually has some like it has legal import in actually some sort of theories of of contract interpretation the fact that he has these shifting grounds of termination you know like i say he has an argument but they didn't tell me i just found out you know which is again okay normally fair but you could did you ask you know (laughs) did you query about this when you had your 44 billion dollars not uh, on the dotted line yet, right? You know, so I don't think that I don't think it's going to play well. I don't. I think you already see in in she's put out what like ten, almost nine or ten decisions in this case. In every single one, I think without exception, uh, at least let's say seventy percent of them, there is this, an explicit kind of uh, sometimes gentle, sometimes not so gentle reprimand about how this case is being litigated by Musk. And that's just not something you ever want to be in the position of dealing with on your side of the case, right? You do right. not want the judge calling you out in opinion saying, this is suboptimal. This is something no sane person would ever ask for. This is, you know, you, these kinds, this kind of language is not, she isn't just sort of always sassy on, right? She is very clearly sending a message to counsel, like, cut it out, right? Don't play these games because it's going to be be detrimental to your client and whether they stop playing those games and whether those games continue into trial is going to have a real impact. I think on how she views 
Musk's testimony. Now, whether or not Musk's testimony is actually relevant to legal issues in the case is sort of another question because it just might not be that relevant what he thinks about the deal. It's more what does the contract say and how do we interpret that in, in the facts uh, of other witnesses? Might Mudge's testimony could potentially matter. Um, but Musk's testimony, like it doesn't really matter that he wants out the deal really bad or that he doesn't feel like doing this anymore or that <laughs> none of that stuff yeah. is like really legally relevant. So y- you could definitely say it's been not great in terms of like the will, how is she viewing the way that the case is being litigated for him? But also, does that end up mattering? I mean, it really is going to depend on what, what the facts show uh, at trial. And and I think that no matter what, you know, as much as the Delaware Court of Chancery relies on parties to have integrity and to operate in good faith, and as much as they ad- admonish them to do so on a regular basis, in, in the end, it's always the facts and the law that matter. It's not, she's not going to decide this case based on some emotional whim or based okay. on some dislike or like of Musk. She is going to decide this case, I am 100% certain, on the facts and the law. And so, know we'll see what those are yeah do i have time for one more sure the other thing that people talk about in this case is that you know she could rule in favor of twitter and elon can say no i'm not doing it Um, (laughs) obviously you've heard that one what 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 do you think about that and also you know is what's the potential for for appeal here like what are the sort of like uh uh options that elon has once she says you have to do this yeah good question so um, in terms of, you know, there, there was a, a former, uh, chancellor and actually sort of former vice chancellor and former, uh, Supreme court justice of Delaware on the Delaware court that, that went on CNBC, I think, or somewhere early on and said like, you know, her, this court is not going to want to rule on specific performance against Musk because courts are very concerned about, you know, enforcing their judgments and that the enforceability of their judgments is paramount to their authority. And so it would be too risky basically was the sort of takeaway that people took from the interview, which I think is slightly reductionist. But let's just say that's the takeaway, that, that the court might be scared in some sense to rule on specific performance against Musk because they would be concerned about whether or not he would comply. Yeah, that was Carolyn, Carolyn Berger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, I'm here to tell you that <laughs> I respect uh, former Justice Berger deeply, and she was a pioneer in many ways on, on both courts that she served on. I think she was speaking from a different era or I, I don't know, but, but I, I don't, I don't personally see it that way. I think that um, Chancellor McCormick is going to have no reservations about the enforceability of her judgment. They can, if Musk uh, refuses to comply with an order of the court, he will be held in contempt. If he is held in contempt, he can be physically put in jail. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is like, these are not things that ever happen really, but they are things that, can happen. And if you're going to flaunt the flout the judgment of the court on a $44 billion deal, you are going to face consequences. Look, his uh, companies are incorporated in Delaware. His stock holdings are in Delaware. Those could be by various mechanisms taken forcibly if necessary. He certainly has enough Tesla stock to cover this purchase price. Um, I don't think that this is a factor in her judgment in any way. I think that she knows that there are mechanisms by which she can enforce her judgments. And I don't, I've never seen any evidence from her that her concern at this point would be 
to sort of uh, cower in the face of a billionaire. That is just yeah. not at all the vibe that I get from her. Right. And as we and, wrap, and, yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. On, on appeal, there's a lot of questions on appeal and what yeah. the timeline is. And, you know, it's, it's a huge question and it's, it's unprecedented in many ways. This being one of them, like how long would the appeal take? Look, the, my big takeaway on appeal is that Chancellor McCormick made very clear in her last opinion, or one of the five last opinions, that that even four weeks delay in this case is too great of a risk of irreparable harm to Twitter. That's a big statement for a judge to make. Four weeks is not that long of a time in like human time, right? In normal human, even in normal litigation time, four weeks is not an unseemly amount of delay for something. If she feels, and I think she's right to feel like at the whims of Elon Musk and his uh, I don't know, serendipitous, serendipitous behavior, kind of his kind of whimsical nature, right? Mm-hmm. You can do a lot of damage being that kind of whimsy online if you're a billionaire. And so I think that the fact that she thinks that four weeks delay is too great of a risk of irreparable harm to justify delaying the trial, I, I would be shocked if she had not communicated with the Supreme Court about the, the the timeline for this appeal, because she made very clear in the motion to expedite that she was basing her timeline around having the appeal concluded by the outside financing date. So people that think that this is going to roll into 2023, June, July, I don't, I don't see that happening. I think that, look, the Supreme Court has a lot of laborious processes and procedures, and it's not used to operating on a super expedited basis. But when there are cases about things that matter on that kind of a timeline, they get them done. When there are voting cases or government issues, they can get it done, right? And so I believe that she, I mean, I have no reason factually to believe this other than just logically, she was very clear about the reason she was setting the timeline as it was, was because she felt that that gave everything a, a substantial likelihood of being wrapped up within the outside financing date, which is in April. So to me, this does not go beyond there. She has worked it out. She is incredibly responsible. She has sorted out the timeline such that it will work that way. I think it could happen sooner, honestly, on appeal, especially if it's just going to be a, a slip opinion affirmance and then maybe an opinion to follow. I don't think we're going to be... We're. I don't see any way in which... And a lot of experienced other Delaware practitioners agree with me. No way this goes into the middle of next year. Okay. Well, look, if if it does get enforced, then <laughs> at least people can say that there's some so one court in the U.S. that seems to be, you know, that cares <laughs> about what's efficient. written down on, yes. on paper and enforcing the rules. Okay. As as we wrap, if you know if people are following this case, what should they look for? You know, if there's anything that like you know mm. you can if there there are certain things that you see that you can sort of handicap it at home. I don't know. Maybe that's unfair to ask, but let's wrap up. Yeah, no, it's interesting because what's what's going to be really interesting about this next phase, so we're just like technically, if, if this were like a normal case, we, we do have a case schedule and we sort of arguably wrapped up regular discovery last week or so, but we know that it's actually still ongoing because we see these disputes arising. We know that there's actually, that we know that probably Elon hasn't been deposed yet. There's a lot of people speculating about Elon's deposition being a sort of, you know, in, in standard corporate litigation, uh, there's a, a sort of like the CEO doesn't really feel like sitting down for a deposition for a lot of reasons, including liability reasons. And so a lot of times cases will settle oh, just before the CEO has to be deposed. I don't see that applying here in part because I think Elon truly believes that he 
isn't obligated to buy Twitter. If that's his, <laughs> if that's his position, then I think he kind of just believes it. I don't think he's scared of a deposition. I don't think he's really scared of very much. I think he's, you know, kind of got this, like, I don't know, bring it on kind of vibe. If, if that's, if that, if he's pushing this thing forward, I, I don't see his deposition being a catalyst in that sense. However, if he sits for his deposition and he says things off the cuff that are incredibly damaging, I think, you know, he has to be facing pressure from his attorneys to just close the deal. Just do the, just figure out the financing, just do the deal at 5420. Don't worry about pre and post judgment interest. Don't worry about the ire of this court. Don't worry about the cost of a trial. Just agree to close the deal on its terms. Now, whether or not anyone can convince him to do anything that he doesn't want to do is an entirely separate question, but, um, so you'll probably hear about the deposition, although we don't really get to know as the the general public, like when it happens or when it's happening, or we don't have a lot of visibility into that specifically unless a particular dispute arises around it. Um, but if it's anything like the rest of this case, we're entering expert discovery phase, which is where they hire experts to say, to make, to render conclusions about factual matters uh, and make arguments based on their expert expertise i suppose we'll have expert competing experts on mdow calculations or on sec filing truthfulness or on you know whistleblower issues cybersecurity risks things like that we don't know who these experts are yet or what they'll be opining on but what we're probably likely to see a lot of motions right before trial about uh, they're called motions in limine to, to, to they don't really do them in this court as much as in federal court because the judge can just kind of the judge is the arbiter of fact and law here. So he or she can just kind of like ignore things that aren't relevant, right? It's not the same as when you're sitting in front of a jury and you have to be careful what you say in front of the jury because the jury isn't as adept at like leaving that information out. But we might see some motions to disqualify an expert on the basis of a conflict or something like that. You know, there's, if we see a motion to disqualify Council that would be huge. I think the the window has passed for that. It seemed at some point like potentially uh, Musk was setting up a motion to disqualify Wachtell, which would be an absolutely <laughs> undeniably massive representing yeah. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, that would be. I mean, no <laughs> argument there. That would be a uh. big friggin' deal <laughs> if that happens. Um, but I, I don't think for many reasons that it, that it's going to. But um, there's a motion that she's got under advisement on privilege waiver of Musk's Tesla and SpaceX emails. I think that's going to be an interesting opinion, whether she uh, waves priv- finds privilege waived on those emails, which I actually think under the, the law in Delaware, she's likely to because he communicated with his lawyers on a matter that had nothing to do with SpaceX or Tesla on his SpaceX and Tesla email platforms. And, you know, for normal humans, since the board of directors and the directors and officers run the company, uh, you don't just get to say like, I'm Elon Musk. I have special privileges around here. That's not like a normal way of doing business as a Delaware corporation. Now I'm not saying that's not how it's done at SpaceX or at Tesla, but you know, she's, I don't think she's going to be persuaded necessarily by the idea that Elon Musk is God internally. And so therefore he, isn't in a different position than someone else would be using their work email to communicate. You're basically waiving privilege. You're, you don't, your employer can read your emails. I mean, sorry to tell you, but like, that's how it is working for the man, right? Or the woman. Yeah. Um, 
So that'll be an interesting one. Not We don't know if there's anything actually interesting in the underlying emails, but it's never a great uh, thing for a party to have their emails with counsel uh, have a privilege waived on them and have them be produced. So that could be right. could be nothing. It could be something interesting. Okay. Chancery Daily, Chance, uh, thank you for coming <laughs> great on. Great to talk to you. Uh, this was great. Thank you for bringing the appropriate nuance to a case with many different uh, wrinkles. I feel like we could go on for for three oh, hours on this. We could for sure. Um, yeah. But but this has been <laughs> so great. Um, before we sign off, can you just let folks know like where they can find you again on Twitter? And um, sure. I know it's a pricey subscription, but if people find themselves interested <laughs> in subscribing, where where do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, it, like I say, we normally you know provide our services to litigators in the court of Chancery and other Delaware courts. So. We have a particular model for our product. We're actually looking at now with all of this interest in providing other lower cost products to people who are more just like lay interested in these kind of issues or even other lawyers in other fields who aren't necessarily corporate law focused, but who want a kind of uh, view into this. So just our, the best, best place to follow us for all of that is on our Twitter, um, twitter.com chancery underscore daily and uh link in bio for all the various ways you can subscribe or communicate with us you can email us at twitter at chancerydaily.com um and we'd love to hear from you we get amazing i mean i just have to say the community (laughs) that has developed around this account is Mm -hmm. like it's priceless it's pretty amazing yeah it's like just these great People of all different, you know, people have very conflicting views on things. And I really encourage people to come with a nuanced perspective. And uh, I'm glad to be here with you to to help share that mission. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm really glad we made it happen. Thanks again for coming on. I was really hoping we'd be able to get it done this week. And um, absolutely perfect timing. So thanks again. Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, that, that will do it for us here this week. Thanks again to Chancery Daily for coming on. Uh, Thank you, Nate Gwatney, for uh, editing the audio. Uh, Thank you, LinkedIn, for having me as part of your podcast network. Thanks again to all of you, the listeners, for being here, coming back week after week to listen to Tech Insiders, Outside Agitators, and um, very well-written folks like Chance Free Day like we had today. Um, I feel like for conversations like this, there's really tough to find places um, with as much nuance as, as you have here. So thanks again for listening and, and to our guests. Um, we'll be back next week with a new episode. We have Brandon Silverman. He's a really interesting guy. He sold his company CrowdTangle to Facebook, which provided really needed transparency as to what was moving on the platform. And the rest is history. You know, you can no longer really access CrowdTangle. Brandon will tell the full story. Um, and now he's advocating for more transparency inside social media companies. So stay tuned for that. All right, that will do it for us here. And so we want to say thanks again uh, for listening. Stay tuned, subscribe and rate, and we'll see you next time on the Big Technology Podcast.